You're listening to Accents, a radio show for literature, art and culture. I'm your host, Katerina Stojkova, and with me today is writer, soldier, veteran, Lubrina Burton. Hi, Lubrina. Hi, how are you? I'm doing really well. Very excited to have you here with me. Great, I'm excited to be here. Well, uh, you are the author of Shitbag Soldier, a nonfiction novel. It is a truly fascinating story, and I'll let you tell our listeners about it. Well, Shitbag Soldier is my, like I said, you said a creative nonfiction novel, and I started writing it when I was at Carnegie. It just started as a collection of stories about my time in the military when I was young and before 9-11, and then it sort of grew into more of a a book. <laughs> so um, I call it a, a novel because I was hoping it would read more like a, a cohesive story instead of just an individual collection of random stories. So eventually I started seeing it come together to tell um, a bigger story within as well as these little stories that happen. So um, I spent about four years total in the military, and this covers mostly my time in Germany for a little over a year and a half. So it's... So is it is it a memoir, in effect? It is a memoir. Um, it's all true to the best of my memory. I did do some research into my own files, and I did look up things on Google that I might not remember as well as I thought I did about the military. So I wanted it to be accurate, but as a memoir, it is a lot from my memory, and it's from my perspective. I wanted to tell my story because I felt like in the military, someone else usually tells your story for you, and then even when you get out, there's a certain version of events that maybe people for whatever reason just wanted to tell but I just wanted to I just wanted the unvarnished truth but I wanted it to read well I I didn't want to just go on about these stories I've been telling my husband or my family for all these years I wanted it to make more sense and I hope to be able to do that on the page tell us about the process of writing it Oh, that was a that was a long and did it take process. more than four years? <laughs> <laughs> it took about five, yeah, from the start to the end. And but I didn't know it was going to be a book. I just started writing at Carnegie um, when I I left my last job as a paralegal. I was disabled. I knew I probably wasn't going to work anymore, and I was just going crazy inside my house um, with these memories. I could. I could see the things that happened in the military. I could see these people. I said they're like soldiers marching across my brain in front of my eyes. and Characters, and, literally yeah. characters right there. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were real, and I felt haunted. And I was like, I can't live my life like this. Uh, I don't. It wasn't just therapy, but it was like, what am I going to do with my life just because I can't do a nine-to-five every day? And um, I remembered... Um, seeing some Carnegie classes when I was working, especially for like Spanish language. And while I was looking for that when I was a paralegal, I saw they offered writing classes. And so I thought someday, someday I'm going to write my story someday. And I always thought that in the military too. It's like, I'm going to write a book when I get out of here. And and then it finally hit me like these books don't write themselves. You've got to take Oh, if they would, right? <laughs> right? I guess we'd be out of a job. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I had to take that first step. So I just took a memoir class at Carnegie, and whew, I was sweating, and <laughs> I 
I was so nervous because I was like, what makes the difference between like just a journal entry and like writing? So I had a long process to learn. So what does, uh, what makes a journal entry a memoir on the page? For me, I started learning about like what you're talking about, character development. Um, about being specific about events when I look through some of my journals there were things that were so painful I couldn't even tell them to myself so they were very vague they were almost like notes for this book and it would just be like something really bad happened today or you know I just I was not at that place at that time that I could talk about anything specific so that was one thing I learned at Carnegie is like bringing the specifics in and, and that can be tough but it's necessary and also more details, setting, time, place, all these things that make stories that when you're just writing a journal, it's just like, well, today I did this. And, you know, and there's also trying to bring in this tension or setting up these stories so that people, I'm now writing for someone else besides just myself. So I have to try to engage the reader and make them want to turn that page. So there was a lot to learn and I'm thankful for Carnegie for that. So couple notes. One is the Carnegie that we mentioned here is the Carnegie Center for Literacy and Learning in Lexington, Kentucky, a literary organization that helps writers and readers of um, all levels. And the other thing is, I really like what you said between the difference between um, a journal entry and a page from a memoir book is, I mean, two things that I heard. One is the craft and the other one is the audience. Yeah, I think that, I think the audience is a big one because like I said, I was just writing for myself just to get it out on the page and I'm still writing for myself. I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read when I was a soldier that they didn't really exist back then, especially because I was in a 97 from a one and there just weren't a lot of books by women military members or or women veterans and especially not enlisted soldiers either and so a lot of the books available to me when I was a soldier were written from a perspective of a high-ranking officer and no offense but they seemed a little like military propaganda and I was like this is you know nothing I'm not trying to diss the military in this at all but I was like, the truth looks a little different when you're down at the bottom of the rung and you're digging holes instead of ordering someone else to dig that hole. So, yeah, the audience plays a big part. Uh, I think you're an audience member, too, so you want to write something you like to read. And so, yeah, it was it was an adventure just writing the book. <laughs> and what about releasing it? Was it frightening? Oh, yeah, I was... I think I googled so many times like <sighs> memoir getting sued blah, 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 all those things and then we even talked about it in Carnegie classes and memoir and and the the instructors would say well just write the story first just get it out worry about all that later and then when you get closer to it you know I start reading these blogs or these things on the internet and and a lot of people said that's just like your inner critic coming out or that's your fear of like another way of trying to keep you silent is that you're worried that there's going to be blowback from it and there can be I'm not saying there isn't because um, you might tell something that people don't want to hear and I've dealt with that before but 
it's just like the story for me needs to come out. It's the one I wanted to write. It's the whole reason I started writing so that I could tell this more effectively. And I just have to brace myself for whatever may come. But hopefully it's true that, you know, we're just kind of, we've still got that nervousness inside of us or that critic telling us like, don't release it. People are going to hate you. And I dealt with that for enough time. I was like, I'm just going to put it out there. If they hate me, they hate me. I'm tired of living in fear. Tell us about the title. Uh, Shitbag Soldier. So <laughs> a lot of military people recognize it and laugh when they first see it because they, they kind of know it's it's military lingo. Um, I guess, you know, some, some other titles might have been like Dirtbag or Dirty Bird or <laughs> Shitbird. I think they've changed over the years like most words. But, yeah, when I was in, it was called Shitbag. You were Shitbag if you... If you didn't do everything that they wanted, the standard, and the standards are not always, like, very objective. So someone could come along and say your boots aren't shiny enough, but are they there measuring shininess? Or your uniform's not creased enough? And it's like, how many inches from your leg is the crease supposed to stand? You know, there's no, there was no way of measuring, like, being the standard sometimes. And so a lot of times... We noticed, at least in my unit, that shitbag was just a way of sort of discrediting someone or just tagging someone that maybe pissed off a sergeant or something, and, and the whole unit would just kind of go along with it because the man in charge says it is true, so everyone has to kind of back that up. So you could get labeled shitbag for a host of different reasons. You know, like I was late a couple times. I admit that. Um, maybe I didn't have the right attitude sometimes, but I think we all were kind of smart-mouthed young soldiers, so we would be like, well, who's going to be called a shitbag? And it was just like pretty much if you just got on your sergeant's bad side for whatever reason and he needed to, at least in my unit, it seemed like we always had a shitbag. Someone had to be a shitbag, and when one person left, another person took their place for it. So there's always this sort of, like, we need to have a scapegoat. We're not fighting a war. If we're going to rally the troops, I guess rally them around a, another soldier to dislike, which is a sad sort of commentary on how things work, not only in the military, but out here. Sounds, I mean, life is hard enough without uh, scapegoating. True. Um, I think we see it not just in the military, but obviously out here. Right. And when I started writing this, I started writing in, it was early 2018, and I started seeing a lot of that happening on a larger scale in this country. And it just reminded me so much of my experience when I was in the military. And I, I was kind of scared, like, well, it's bad enough when it happens on a on a level of like military units or in your job but I, when you get someone similar like that in charge of a whole country what are they capable of doing and I'd already lived through it I'd seen how it operated and it just felt like so many people were going along with it and it was a very scary time it's still a scary time and I just hate to see that happen on a larger level like a country level because we know through history what can happen and it's just a way to confirm a place in the world for certain people, I think. They they think they should be at the top, that they belong there. 
in my case in the military it was a lot of men thinking they shouldn't have women in the military or they shouldn't have gay people in the military and they wanted to maintain the status quo so if they could pick on someone maybe from one of those groups and show how they were inferior how they didn't belong and it didn't matter if the evidence was there to contradict them they just discarded it and they needed to confirm this viewpoint for everybody else of how and why the military would be better if we just got rid of these people and I think that's a dangerous, slippery slope in any organization or any country. A homogeneity is dangerous, period. So do you think that things have changed now? In the military or the world? Well, I think that in the world I have seen shifts. I don't know about the military, though. Maybe you don't have a view in it right now. Um, I, don't, I would like to think things have changed, but I really don't know because I'm so far from it I hang you know I know women veterans that were in pretty much around the same time I was and and so we've had similar experiences some of us some of us not some you know there's 20 year veteran female veterans and they had a good experience or maybe they just did four years and had a great experience so it just seems to be hit or miss I know when I was in um I had a couple people who'd been in longer than me and they said it's such a shame that this unit is like how it is because the rest of the military is not like this but that was really my only experience or knowledge of it I'd been reserves before that and had a great experience in the reserves here in Lexington I drilled over off Leestown and it was a great unit and we all got along we all had camaraderie when we were together and and I liked it so much, that's one of the reasons I wanted to go active duty. And then when I went overseas to Germany, it was just unlike anything I'd ever experienced, even in training. And I just never had seen that level of division amongst troops. And some people claim that was just kind of a, a fluke of a unit, you know, bad luck. <laughs> so I can't really speak to the whole military and I can't speak to how it is now I just know my experience was like that and your job as a writer is to tell your story can you read us a little bit please okay start with chapter one about basic training just to give you a little taste of what it was like back then which I imagine some of it's probably the same so this one's called the Mio is tomorrow Sweat trickles down my spine, giving me an itch in a place I'm forbidden to scratch, even if I could reach it. My 65-pound rucksack is plastered to my back. My battle dress uniform is sealed to me like a layer of camouflage epidermis. The only trees, like shimmery mirages on the horizon, keep shade forever out of reach. Underneath my combat boots, a sandy dust coats the angry, cracked ground. The dirt road stretches out into the unknown future. The landscape contorts itself around me. In my periphery, I am certain I spy a melting clock dangling from a distant branch. It's hotter than the fiery pits of hell. The words escape my head and orbit inside my Kevlar brain bucket. The July sun brightens as I utter my grievances as if I have offended Helios himself. I've done cooked out here. Fort Learwood is about as far from the exotic locales featured in recruiting commercials as you can get. I did not expect my eight weeks of basic training to be conducted in paradise, but sometimes I wonder if the Army picked this spot in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, just to torture young recruits. 
This is the first time in my 17 years I have much memory of living outside the hollers and hills of southeastern Kentucky. Please describe the cover. Um, the cover is a picture of a palace or a castle. Um, I guess to me they're synonymous, but Germans, they make a little bit of a difference in their language. It's called a, a Schloss. Um, so this was... Um, this is an actual place in where I was stationed overseas in Germany, and I actually marched to it. It was one of my last ruck marches, if not the last ruck march um, that I ever did, and we marched to this, this palace um, close to the base, and it's actually in the book. Uh, it's I think it's the end chapter, but I liked it for the cover because when I was writing the book and editing, I noticed that this sort of theme of like fairy tales emerging of like, it's also this coming of age story and discarding like your child world views. And so when I was young, I grew up on stories from people who'd been in the military or our culture that talked about like, oh, you'll go in the military, you'll do all this cool stuff. Da, 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 da. And, yeah, and you will, you'll do a lot of cool stuff. And even when I was in the reserves, other soldiers who'd been active duty told me, like, go, you should go overseas. You should just leave Kentucky. You'll never have this opportunity again. Kentucky will be here when you get home. College will be here when you get back. This is your one chance to live and experience something. And and they told me stories about driving BMWs 100 miles an hour down the Audubon and drinking beer and having more money than they could spend. And, and so it sounded fun. I'd grown up poor in eastern Kentucky, and that's all I'd ever known. And I was young when I went over to Germany. I joined the military when I was 17, and I went over to Germany right after I turned 20. And it sounded like a great adventure, a way to serve my country. And it was. It was it was a wonderful experience in a lot of ways. It was just the reality looks a little different, uh, and you learn that when you grow up. So were there castles? Were there gingerbread houses? Were there enchanted forests? Yeah, but there's also that darker side of every fairy tale that maybe we clean up for kids. What would you call this starry-eyed Lubrina who wanted the 100 miles an hour in a BMW on the Autobahn, living in a castle. <laughs> I didn't expect to live in a castle, I guess, but I wanted to see something, something so different and just something so unlike anything I could see here. I mean, I'd seen the Versailles castle, but I wanted to see the real thing. You know, I wanted that. I was very... I don't know, I was very driven by adrenaline and adventure at that age. And sometimes I think growing up, at least in my family or where I'm from, the rules for women can be a little different than they are for guys. And you're expected to kind of rein that energy in and, and be still, be quiet, and always be good or what they consider good. And so, like, I was a very active, energetic child. And and so when the opportunity to join the military came along, they asked me, what kind of job do you want? And they tried to put me in admin. And I was like, I'm not spending the rest of my life behind a desk because I can't take it. I don't know if I had ADHD or I was just like very, I was just a kid. I was very energetic, but I was like, man, to be able to drive a BMW, you know, like, I don't know, to me that represented. So though that story's in there too about getting a BMW and everything, but it was a used Beamer. It didn't matter to me that it was like a hundred years old at the time or had passed hands like six times. To me, it just represented like I've made it. I've 
you know, I'm able to provide for myself. I'm independent. I'm going to be okay in this world all alone because I can make this money and I can buy the things I want and I can have the experiences that I want. And driving that car as fast as I could down the Audubon, it just represented all those stories that I'd been told about adventure, about money, about because I even I took my buddy with me to go buy it, and it's like camaraderie. It was like everything I was looking for. It wasn't just financial representation, but it was like, here I am finally living the dreams that I always wondered what it would be like to do these things. And I was so grateful for that opportunity in the military because those opportunities haven't traditionally been there for women, especially where I'm from. So to be able to do this on my own without having to get married or rely on my parents, it represented a lot of freedom. And when I tell people the military is freedom, they kind of laugh at me, but it was. It, it granted me a lot of autonomy and freedom that I might not have had if I'd been born a generation ago where I was born. What's your favorite memory about that time? I think some obviously driving the car. <laughs> it was so fun and so thrilling and it just felt free for me to make my own decisions. Like I bought the car myself. I didn't take a parent. So all that, that's why I put that in there. Maybe you don't make the best decisions sometimes when you're young, but it was about just trying it out, making decisions. But when I look back at those times too, I think I never really did a lot of stuff alone. I always had a friend. I always had a good buddy going all the way back to AIT. We have battle buddies. Um, they, they're like your best friend, but they got your back. They're always there for you, and hopefully you're always there for them. So going all the way back to AIT, I had like just the closest friends that I've ever had in my life, despite some some rough patches with other soldiers, these people had my back and I was there for them. At least I hope they remember that way. But I just, I've just never had that sort of like tight bond again with another person. And I think the things you go through together, especially as a young person, encountering these situations for the first time away from the protection of family, you have to rely on each other for that kind of support and friendship. And it's just, I'll, I'll always remember the Battle Buddies, and that's who I dedicated the book to, Battle Buddies. And you honor them in a wonderful way, your Battle Buddies. And I have to tell you that the universe honored you today when I was coming in to, you know, uh, to work today, and I was thinking about this podcast. I saw in my mailbox the latest issue of Kentucky Monthly, and it says here, Kentucky women in the military. So there is uh, a big article about Ken Kentucky women in the military, and you are one of them. Oh, yes. I got so. this yesterday. I haven't read it all the way through, but I was so excited because it's November, and Veterans Day is in November, and yep. um, I'm excited to see that they're honoring the, the women veterans because they've got that exhibit up in Frankfurt, and I visited that at the History Museum, and I, I was really happy to see a lot of women from Kentucky that I know in there. And finally, they had their service recognized. And I think finally, you know, through a lot of work and and speaking out now from women veterans, they're starting to come to the front and, and not be as invisible. Because when I came back from the military, it was pre-9-11. I got out about six weeks before 9-11. And then I went back to college and... There wasn't 
there wasn't a lot for veterans in general because we hadn't had all those wars. But then after a while, as things started, people started coming out of the military, I started hearing things about, well, the where are all the women veterans on campus? Like, they just kind of blend in. There's a lot of talk about, like, you don't recognize them because they don't stand out. They don't keep the haircuts that the guys have. We never had the high and tights anyway. But so they started calling us the invisible veterans. And so that was... That was a long time ago, and it doesn't feel like it, but over the last 20 years, thanks to the work of a lot of women and women veterans, I think they're finally helping get us some acknowledgement. Um, it's not about patting us on the back, but it's just about being recognized that we served, and a lot of women vets, I think they, they like to say, as I do, it's not we served too, but we served and what are you writing these days? Do you continue with the military theme or? Um, I'm in, right now I'm currently enrolled in EKU's MFA program, the Bluegrass Writers Studio. So I'm doing lots of different writing, exploring topics. Um, I'm taking a creative nonfiction class right now that's led by Professor Massey, who's also a veteran. And it's just been a, a really good way to just see different styles of writing that maybe I wouldn't have been exposed to even nonfiction because there's like so many different ways of writing nonfiction and so I've written about different things a lot of it a lot of the military does crop up in it it just feels like it's such a big part of my life even though it was only four years it takes up so much brain space way more than four years of college way more than four years of anything else and it's just I think it'll always occupy that huge space in my brain um it was so formative it was such an adventurous time in my life and so it creeps in to a lot of my writing in one way or another even if it's not directly about the military I just I think it's just going to be something that's always at least there hanging over my writing it's there's still so much to explore too that I didn't get to in this book so you know, we'll see what happens. Has your life changed having published the book? Um, I get to be on a podcast, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know if I'd say change. Sometimes it looks so different than I could have ever imagined. Um, I know I read an article a while back about someone who graduated from an Ivy League school and he went back to his his reunion and and they were in competition to see who was the best writer out of the group and I think about when I went to school in high school or college and it was like no one really expected I think a lot of us to become writers we we're working class kids you know we had to go out and earn I mean even every writer has to earn a living few of us are you know <laughs> lucky enough to make an earning from it but um I just don't think that was something that was very encouraged when I went to school that you would become a writer per se. I mean, I was discouraged from the arts because I was told you'd starve to death, and that's probably true. But I found out that there's just, you can still do it even if you're not going to be a New York Times bestseller. And it's not even about that. It's about personal fulfillment and doing what you want to do. So and for me, it wasn't about chasing success or anything like that. And um, but just to get my words out there in a book, it seemed unreal. It just seemed like it was never going to happen. And I don't know 
if I could have ever imagined or letting myself think that something like that might happen and that people would read it, it's just been such an honor to be published and to have people read it. I think it's an important story, not just about my life, but about things that happen in there in the military for all of us. So I didn't want it to just be about me, but I don't know. Sometimes when I look at my life, I'm like, I can't believe I get to write. I can't believe I've published. It's just, it's, and the people I met. So when I said like two battle buddies in the book, it's about people that I've met along the way in the writing journey. They've been my battle buddies. We've, you can't do it without support, I always say. And so there's been, I think writing is probably the biggest camaraderie that I've had since I was in the military, like meeting these people who support each other. And it's not about competition. It's not about who's the better writer or who's getting more success. It's just about supporting one another and being there and happy when they achieve. And so I think I've, I've been lucky to find like the sort of best parts of the military out here. Thank you so much, Lubrina. Pleasure having you today. Thanks for having me. It's good talking to you.